Hello, I am C-3PO, and I believe the storyteller is ready. So, let us begin. This week, the story is about seeing the positives in something where we've often fixated on the negatives. We're talking about Solo, a Star Wars story on this episode, which is, if not the worst movie in the franchise, it is the movie that made the least money. We've often agreed that it's our least favorite. So in the spirit of celebration, we're going to count down our top six favorite things about Solo. Uh, just a quick note, we are going to uh, talk some more about season one of The Bad Batch going forward, but we're going to give it some time so we can dissect it on our own schedule. Ross, when we love something about Star Wars, uh, we're passionate about it. We love it with our whole selves. Does that passion work in reverse? Are we harder on Star Wars for its flaws than we might be other movies? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And a lot of people will talk about that when it comes to Solo. They see it as, oh, but it's just a fun romp and it's a it's a good action movie and it harkens back to the 1980s. And that's fine. But when you're evaluating Star Wars for the decisions that they make and the resources that they utilize and of the galaxy far, far away and the options that you have and the obligations that people feel Star Wars has to its fan base and the obligation Star Wars does have to its fan base in certain capacities uh, can make it very, very easy to be very critical of something that maybe isn't meant to be viewed the same critical eye. Mm. In the same way that Alec Guinness hated the way that Star Wars was so overanalyzed. People think that he hated Star Wars. He didn't hate Star Wars. He didn't like the fact that people saw so many like people dissected it and went so many layers deep and the obsessive nature that people had over it, oh. um, which is, is fine. Uh, and I think is a little weird, uh, but I think he just wanted people to view it from the perspective of the way George sold it to him, where it was, this is a, a kind of going back into the, the old school way of telling stories of good versus evil and the life lessons and the hero's journey. And that's totally fine, but Solo isn't starting anew. Right. This, is, this story is very much building off of things we already know. And unfortunately, in the way that we view this, I feel like a lot of the things that Solo doesn't succeed on are its areas where it relies too heavily on the things that we do know. And in the areas where it does succeed, some of it is things that directly tie back to things that we know about Han Solo, but a lot of it is really new things that are introducing and broadening the character as opposed to kind of contradicting the character in certain ways. And so it is really exciting to talk about the positives because there are a ton of positives. There are no Star Wars movie that, there's no Star Wars movie that I, I don't really love, but if we talk about Star Wars so much that of course we're going to rank about them and in that same regard we're going to be able to realize the one that has the most flaws from our perspective. Yeah, you draw a really interesting perspective between or a distinction rather between uh, Star Wars movies that seem to be trying to live within what is already and Star Wars movies that are trying to start anew and to do anything especially creatively revolutionary in Star Wars at this point, to like try and break the mold as you tell a new Star Wars story, is already, while admirable, risky because people are going to feel the way they feel. Now, it can pay great rewards 
or you can find yourself in very dangerous territory. But where Solo is kind of on its own is in being yet another movie that talks about these characters who you already know and care very deeply about while also trying to create a new tone for the franchise and a new genre, frankly. And so that's where you end up feeling a little bit out to sea, I think. And I also think it's really interesting you point out that that's a qualifier people use a lot when they're defending Solo. Like, you know, get over yourself. It's a fun movie. Like, can't you just have fun at the movies? Of course you can just have fun at the movies. But you have to be very protective of your uh, attachment to certain characters and what each new installment of that character implicates upon the franchise. We can never take away the fact that Han loved someone before Leia, for example. And that's fine, but now it exists in every Leia kiss, in every in every fight. It, like, it, the fact that he abandons his friends at the end of A New Hope before coming back to be the hero. There is this backstory which maybe helps you understand that better or maybe makes it a little bit more murky. And so it's dangerous of course it's risky and I, I think that we knew that before we saw this movie and we had some of our some of our concerns realized yeah absolutely but in spite of all that it doesn't mean that there weren't a lot of kind of fun things within the movie and a lot of things that do enrich the character of Han and enrich the story around him and some of the characters we do know and introduce some really new ones and a lot of these things will grow and build upon and there's also the, I guess, uh, the flaw of assumption that goes along with this film where they assumed they were going to be able to tell a longer story and as a result didn't give us enough of a story. Right. And, or, and, and also at the same time managed to cram too much into the story. So it was kind of a, a little bit of both in that. Uh, but even still with that, uh, there are a lot of cool things that can still come from Solo beyond what we get on the screen. There's a lot of loose ends uh, with different characters. I talked before about how I, I, it's almost a slam dunk, I think, that we're going to get Dryden Voss in the Bad Batch. And so there's cool things like that that uh, will come uh, from there. But uh, do you want to kind of start us off with your number six for your top six favorite things in Solo, A Star Wars Story? Absolutely. So my sixth favorite thing in Solo is the casting. I think that if I have inherited this cast and I'm the maker of a new Star Wars movie and I know full well that making a Han Solo origin story is dangerous and risky and people are sensitive about it and this is my cast, Alden Ehrenreich, Amelia Clark, Donald Glover, Paul Bettany, Woody Harrelson, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, and it's 2018 or 2019, Tandy Newton. I'm thinking there's not a better cast in the world. Uh, obviously, we could talk until we're blue in the face about whether or not Alden Ehrenreich achieved some kind of ethereal Han Solo X factor. Frankly, I think he didn't, and that's one of the inherent flaws in the movie, but nobody delivers a poor performance in this movie. Uh, if you... If we were to list everything we hated about this movie and that was the theme of this episode instead, neither one of us would say, well, this person didn't act well in this movie. Um, the cast rules. And similarly to Alden, I think that while Donald Glover is like one of the great uh, pop artists of our time in all of his uh, many mediums of discipline, um, he just didn't achieve quite the right atmosphere for me. 
but the but the fact that he's in the cast is something else and and so the cast is is phenomenal yeah the cast is really really excellent and it's it's interesting because i do view those things very differently uh alden ehrenreich i actually do think achieves the essence of han solo and i think it proves my point and well our point and what a lot of people's fear it was about this movie that it was impossible mm. and i th- think because he achieves the essence of Han Solo and it still doesn't work for me, that's why it proves it to be impossible. But if you deep, there's a few deep faked scenes of like Harrison Ford's face on there and it's amazing, the physical performance that Alden Ehrenreich gives, but his voice is too high and he's uh, six inches shorter than Harrison Ford. That's noticeable too. And it's that's very noticeable yeah. when your sidekick is seven foot five or seven foot two or whatever he is. If like there's a third of the difference is gone, mm-hmm. uh, or added on, and so it, it makes a big difference. Uh, just the fact that he isn't Harrison Ford, and uh, I think that's a really interesting element because I do think he captures that essence. And I also think that Donald Glover does. I think you nail him on the head when you say that the volume is wrong. Yeah. And that is the one thing that he's definitely missing because he doesn't have the the belly confidence that right. Billy D. Williams the vibrato. Uh, evokes. Yeah. The vibrato. That is absolutely the word I was looking for. Yeah. Um, but he definitely has the the swagger. Uh, in a really good way, and uh, still makes me th- like think of a a less confident Lando because he's younger, but also a more arrogant Lando because he's not as wise because he's younger. And so I think he he nails it in that regard. And it, I guess it's not out of the question that we might see him as Lando again. There was a little bit of a rumor mill chugging about there being uh, a Lando limited series. Full announcement. Uh, oh. And so that's that is that is official, but it is oh, uh, wow. officially, or I think it's officially listed as the the last on the TV of like of their uh, TV announcements. It's the one that is considered at the farthest end. There's absolutely nothing that has been said about it other than uh, the logo. They have mm-hmm. not said whether Billy D or Donald Glover are in it. Right. And I think that's because they're trying to get both of them and didn't have both of them locked up. And that's the reason why they didn't announce that. You know, that Donald Glover and Phoebe Waller-Bridge are doing Mr. And Mrs. Smith together. Yeah. That's, I think that's awesome. Yeah. I think that's very, very alluring. I don't know what's going to become of Alden Ehrenreich. I think I've said that before that the first time I saw him, it was in the Coen brothers movie, Hail Caesar, which is like a stacked cast. And he was the least mm-hmm. famous person in it. And he totally stole the show. Like, a great comedy performance and he's just not funny in solo but the cast itself the lineup uh you know to say nothing of of woody harrelson and uh and paul bettany uh, amelia oh, clark who mm. sometimes is a little scrutinized as a thespian is just so charming uh and i found great. found her character to be the most intriguing frankly so that's my favorite uh or my sixth favorite thing in the movie is the lineup what is your number six uh, my number six uh, kind of extends a little bit from the way I was talking about uh, Donald Glover's portrayal of Lando. Uh, but my number six is the fact that Lando is a cheater. I, I think that's great. I think it's uh, a really appropriate and fitting element to the character, something that adds a great wrinkle to the relationship between him and Han, adding that other layer of, yeah, they're both scoundrels, but 
like Lando screws Han so hard in Empire. And this is just one of those kind of setting the, the framework for that, that he is very, very, very much out for himself. And there's probably was going to be a lot of back and forth that they were going to build up from that. Uh, but even just the back and forth that they're able to build up within this film between the two card games, I way prefer, like they're both, they are both really good. There's a lot of great banter between both games of Sabacc, but I really love the one at the very end, uh, just because he's like the like kind of Hawaiian shirt that he's got yeah. on and how surprised he is to see Han and Chewie. Uh, and then of course, Han pulling the fast one on him, but uh, overall, I think uh, Lando being a cheater is a great addition to the character as uh, an overall it was a, a, one of the the good kind of uh, additions to him being a, a card player, scoundrel, swindler. Yeah, he really has this reputation before Donald Glover's portrayal as as a career scumbag. And it's funny because he mm. really only ever does one truly slimy thing in the original trilogy. And everything else he does is like done with the cockiness that's not unfamiliar to us, but is otherwise incredibly heroic. Um, mm. And it makes sense, of course, that as a younger man, he has fewer inhibitions and he's much more self-absorbed. Like, you could really argue that although, and I think we have argued this, although selling out the rebels in Empire Strikes Back is shitty, he didn't exactly have a choice either. No, and so I wouldn't necessarily say it's this great character flaw of Lando's, except for that Han knows he has uh, a history of being untrustworthy. And so it is important that we got to see that in this movie. Yeah, and it also goes along the lines of, yeah, he's younger and even less confident. He can't even play cards that well. He just cheats. Every time, yeah. And, and that's good enough for him. Han... Uh, it, that's one of the reasons why I don't like the the first one as much is because there's supposed to be like all of these incredible card players and Han just somehow is better than all of them. Uh, but it uh, it definitely does add to the rivalry. So my number five is the train heist sequence. Um, I, ironically, I find that some of the best Star Wars action is land-based. Like, I mean, we've talked a lot in recent weeks about how much you love the pod race. Um, this sequence is where Solo stepping out of the traditional genre of Star Wars totally pays off because suddenly it feels like a Fast and Furious movie. And I think that's what people mean when they talk about this just being an entertaining, exciting movie. Yeah, it kind of feels like Mission Impossible. And it's still funny in this sequence. And it's still suspenseful. It ends marginally successfully, but also they have a tragedy along that sequence. And so it kind of fuses Han in closer with the, with the group. Um, the cinematography is solid there. The effects really work. Um, I, I just think the train sequence is, is really good. It, it's what really kind of uh, solidifies Solo as a heist movie. And at least in this sequence, it works. Yeah, it's uh, awesome. It's my number uh, It's my number four. Uh, it's uh, such a cool sequence. Definitely the best action sequence in the film, in my opinion. Uh, I love the range troopers in particular mm -hmm. as well with their magnetic boots and the way that they just add this other addition with their kind of snowy garb. And it's, yes, it's like a Fast and the Furious kind of style. Yes, it's like a Mission Impossible, but it's also just a good old classic Western train heist. Yeah, oh, that's true. But it's true. this upside down conveyance thing going through these crazy cool mountains. 
and then they explode one of the mountains at the end because they're not just stealing gold bars. They're stealing good old Star Wars uh, <coughs> plot device. And so it's important that uh, it goes back to its roots, but does it in this kind of fun way. I think this is, because this is very much what the movie is all about. And I think this is the part of the film that succeeds at it the best, at being uh, something that harkens back to the DNA of what made Star Wars Star Wars, something that The Mandalorian executes so well, taking up those same pieces of inspiration to be inspired in your own way. Uh, but I feel like other parts of the movie don't necessarily hit in that same way. Uh, but there is another one that does that I'll also mention a little bit later on. But no, I think this whole sequence is really awesome. And it's so well lit for such a horribly lit movie. <laughs> that's, that's a really good point. Yeah. Well, it's outside. It's, it's outside in, mm. in the daylight for the most part. It's kind of a wonder there's not more trains in Star Wars. Like, it seems that we could have had a really great action sequence among the monorails or the subways of Coruscant. Like, that, that could be a very cool place to see some real urban mayhem, um, especially mm -hmm, since absolutely. like the galaxy far away is, is very assembly line based. So like we could have had it on Geonosis. There could have been like a, like a, a train sequence or, or basically anywhere. Yeah. I guess we get the manufacturing sequence, the assembly line, droid assembly line and Geonosis. And we get the, um, the speeder chase at the start of attack of the clones as well. They give you kind of a lot of similar ones, but yeah, it is nice to, to get a, a good old fashioned uh, train heist. So that's your number four backtracking to your number five. My number five is a really simple one, but one that was very, very smart. And one that I think rogue one failed on in retrospect and I think Solo does a really good job on it. I think that would be the crawl substitute. Oh. Uh, and so that is the use of a uh, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away font, but coming with this different sort of menacing tones in the background and kind of highlighting it in a, in a subtle sort of way, showing flat, like it's the same amount of text as you would get in a crawl. It's a little bit less. But it sets up the film in the same sort of way a crawl would, but doesn't have the same epic nature. Uh, and I think that's a nice distinction for what they were going for with these uh, Star Wars stories. And uh, I just thought it was good for being able to kind of set up the context for those who maybe didn't know where this was going with a younger Han Solo or where it was in his life uh, or anyone who just kind of wants to pick up from where they get go. So another one of those things that, yes, they're trying to, to reconstruct some of the early DNA of Star Wars to give them something new that I think does work. Uh, and I think that was important to use as that, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, the serialization yeah. of the story. It, remind me, this movie does start with a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Uh, yes. Because uh, it seems to me that Mando was the first like live action thing where they made the choice not to include that. Uh, that sounds right. It still kind of um, grinds my gears. I don't think that they should ever start a Star Wars thing without that, that title card. It's so simple. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is so simple. That's certainly true. I'm just trying to think because it's, 
like there's always that skip intro stuff on Disney Plus and yeah. Um I don't think they skip over our a long time ago. I don't think they ever would. That doesn't seem right. Um, it just does the little like flashing of the masks, I guess. Well, they have a cool new, they have a cool new one for that bad batch as well. I they saw that. The anima- yeah. Animated masks. Well, and because star Wars established in 1977, this openness to setting the scene for you in a way that's like much more, uh, show me your cards than most theater or movies ever, like ever, yeah. ever bother to. Um, the animated series do, does that as well, and it's actually narrated for you with this great kind of serialized, serialized voice. And so, I, I say, don't throw that away. That's like your most effective device. You you don't mm-hmm. have to like, you don't have to expect of your audience to like settle in and pay close attention and figure it out for themselves. They're here to play and enjoy themselves. Like you, you are welcome a certain degree more exposition than many other movies, you might as well take advantage of it. But I, I agree with you. Well, from what I remember of the of the solo one, it was it was an, a neat uh, substitute. Yeah, Sub, exactly. And it's it's just nice to have that in the same way that I do love what it's has been done for the Clone Wars. Uh, and in, for the other shows, it's just been, been very, very simple mm-hmm. uh, in the introduction of just like kind of like a title card. I'm fine with that as well for TV. Uh, but it is, I think, the right thing to do in a film. So my number four, uh, I'm not sure if this is going to be on your list. I figure it's either going to be very high or not on your list at all. It's the Darth Maul cameo. Okay, it's not on my list. It's not. Okay, so I admit it's not perfect. Uh, it feels like a little bit manipulative. It's certainly a little bit stunty because this is right in the heart of when Star Wars and Disney in general is really trying to drop your jaw at least once per movie. Um, mm. And... It worked. I mean, it, to be entirely fair, like there's, there's probably nobody else in Star Wars who I expected less to see in that moment. And that might partly be because I don't know the extended Darth Maul legend as well as uh, small screen fans. I think that he turns on his lightsaber is very stupid. I think that's only just to confirm to casual fans, you're you're correct. This is who you think it is. Um I also think that's one of the problems with using him at all is that your your casual fans, which is to say the majority, don't necessarily know that Darth Maul is alive in this day and age, and so they are a little alienated and confused. All that said, it's rad to see him, and I also love that it incorporates this great twist for the character of Kira, which is... I've said many times my lasting impression of that entire movie, if we got nothing else, but further uh story for for what happens to kira i'd be okay with that um and so the entire crimson dawn thing is appealing the fact that it involves this other like great mysterious unfulfilled villain of star wars is exciting and at this point in the movie i've already realized that it's not perfect and it's not exactly what i hoped it would overcome um but it has been fun and this is an even better example of that than the train sequence. And so it was cool to see Maul again. Yeah. And this one maybe could, certainly could have made my list. It's in my honorable mentions because it's so great to see him again. And it does make a lot of sense. It's just, it's so unfulfilled at this point. Another thing that I feel 
the payoff in the long run for this will be so much more and will become a highlight that we get from Solo. Uh, because it does connect a lot of pieces and it gets people to ask questions. Why is Maul still around? Right. And that can potentially lead them to watching the Clone Wars or to learning a little bit more. That's true. Uh, and that's that's always a great thing. Uh, and as somebody who understood the fact that Maul had become a crime boss and had kind of co- like aligned syndicates together, uh, thought that, oh, this is very cool. And it adds to, okay, so the really sadistic things that Kira has been doing well, no kidding. Darth Maul is her boss. No, like it makes sense that Crimson Dawn is considered to be one of the most ruthless of the cartels in the galaxy, and so it does make all the sense in the world. And it is a cool surprise. It's one that the payoff. I just feel we haven't we haven't gotten it yet. Yes. I'm, I mean, meet me on Dathomir. I want to see that. Yeah. I want to see the follow up from that. I want to see how we get to Maul at this point to Maul in eight years when he's stranded on Malachor and um, meets up with uh, the Rebels crew. Can, so. can we not do this in the Bad Batch? Like, there's room in there, right, to incorporate oh, Maul and Kira? Absolutely. There's absolutely room. Uh, probably not room for Kira because yeah. her age, uh, yeah. but there's absolutely room for Maul. Maul has... 10 years to continue building his criminal criminal empire to a position where he's the leader of Crimson Dawn. And although his shadow collective is not standing, Crimson Dawn is standing strong. Uh, and so they are likely at, at the start of this film of the start of solo, um, Kira mentions that they would be sold to Crimson Dawn or the Hutt cartel in kind of a feared sort of way. Now that could be geographically the cartels that they would be sold to or potentially the two most feared. And so that also makes a lot of sense. So it makes sense that he would show up in Bad Batch also because it's a success. It's a sequel to The Clone Wars. Right. So uh, your number four was the train sequence. Should I go again? Yeah, go for it. So really great transition into my number three because we're talking about crime bosses and cartels. My number three favorite moment in this movie is indeed the nod to Tatooine and Jabba the Hutt. It is so minimal. It, it It's really tiny, but it's like a rare time when this movie uh, and the character like Alden's Han Solo really feels like Han Solo. And suddenly it feels like all the strings are being pulled together and the fabric is going to be one beautiful quilt. Uh, bittersweetly, I think it calls to mind that uh, Jabba could have made this movie better, um, mm-hmm. that it really highlights that this movie is clearly just the setup for a, a trilogy of Han Solo movies, a trilogy that will never be. Um, and since they were so dead set on filling this thing with fan service, all relating to the many throwaway things that Han Solo said, Castle Run, whatever, um, they definitely could have... Uh, better fleshed out that uh, that Han Jabba relationship because that is what defines him when we first meet him in Star Wars. And so to see at the end of this movie that that's just about to begin is tantalizing and and riveting. And it's unfortunately uh, something we're never going to see, at least in its original vision. But to, yeah, to, to hear about Jabba and Tatooine and uh, and just the, the genesis of scoundrel han as we have yet to see him in this form it's pretty exciting yeah there is it's very cool that they do a lot of the kind of the transition stuff and they hit on the big pieces but they don't 
hit really on the scoundrel world that we know of in association with Han. No. Now, I like that they connect the scoundrel world from the prequels to the scoundrel world of the original trilogy through Han, but I think Jabba the Hutt or even potentially Boba Fett would have been more important to making this feel connected and uh, elevating for the character or making it feel at least more consistent for the character than having Lando in. I think, uh, I mean, yes, the, the, the Falcon is essential. And so maybe Han already has the Falcon and maybe we, he can still meet Chewie, but he, maybe he doesn't need to meet Chewie, meet Lando, get the Falcon, do the castle run, um, and like, ha- like it reintroduce the dice is a big thing. Yeah, um, they thought they were they were is, playing the hits. All I these think. things. Yeah, yeah. I it just it right. gets a little over the top, but I think, like you said, Jabba the Hut, he would have been at the top of my list for like, you know, put like Falcon and Chewie, but Jabba right there. It's where the backstory of Han has. A lot of a lot of intrigue. I don't need to see him drop his cargo shipment that gets Java mad at him. Yeah. But just like start that relationship. And once again, it's them banking on the assumption of getting the ability to continue selling the story. Uh, not their fault, kind of their fault. Uh, but that is a, a tantalizing loose threat. Well, for me, one of the cringiest lines in the whole movie is when he says to Kira, what are you talking about? I'm a terrible person. It's it, it's. It's both an example of Han not having self-awareness and wanting to be something that he isn't, and at the same time, the movie trying to convince you that, he, look, he's much more of a scoundrel here than he was when you were when you know him better as a hero later on, and it's just like 0% convincing because he's just this like little, little tender-hearted boy who only does the right thing in the whole movie, and so yeah. it's a... You're, you are certainly never sold on this idea that Han Solo, previous to falling in love with Leia and the Rebellion and truly caring about Luke, uh, he had this kind of solo approach to, to life. No, he was, he was a, a team player from day one in this movie, and that's another reason it didn't really work. But if Jabba had been in it, we may, may have been able to see him uh, in another skin. I mean, it might have been cool also to see Han pal around with Jabba. Like maybe yeah. his maybe his first. They're a wonderful person. Well, yeah. Like maybe his first dealings. Human being. Yeah, a human being or a wonderful human being. Maybe his first dealings with Jabba went well. Like maybe he was one of Jabba's guys for a while. Oh, absolutely. I don't know a lot of the. I'm sure. I, I would imagine it's explored in the comics. Yeah. But I'm quite confident that is the canon story. Is that. Like Han, my bookie, Han, my boy. Like he's right. one of his favorites. Yeah, and that's because he almost always delivers, and that also lends to Greedo's jealousy of wanting to kill Han because sure. now he can get rid of Han and gets Han out of the way because well, Han's one of Jabba's favorites. Yeah, see, that's a good story. <laughs> show <Yeah>. me that. <laughs> yeah, show, show like have him becoming the golden boy, and then and doing the opportunity right. to go back for Kira or something. Right, and doing shady stuff, which helps us better understand how he evolved long-term. Anyway, we're talking in circles. Uh, Your turn for number three, please. 
My number three would be uh, talking and highlighting uh, Kira as well on that one. And that would be when Kira kills Dryden Voss. It's just overall uh, a very cool sequence um, when Han does kind of the the fake out. And it's a matter of, okay, who's killing who? And then they have the the fight where Dryden's got his his Kyuzo Petars, the little um, bronze uh, lightsaber daggers. Yeah. Yeah, like brass knuckles that have like lightsaber uh, on them. Right, uh, and and so he's he's fighting like a badass, uh, and they're doing like this this great banter back and forth. Like we should uh, reevaluate our relationship, and uh, but then in the end, Kira just decides, okay, I need to end this for the sake of Han, and let me pull out this weird like sword paddle thing uh it's very strange looking and then she uses terrace costi which goes back to uh a 1997 i had to look up the year video game uh masters of terrace costi which is uh a, a really cool throwback to be able to kind of pull that out and then have her take on dryden voss and just impale him yeah uh, and then shoe han along his way uh, and so that she can go and continue the dirty work because, I mean, that's all she knows at this point. She didn't have the ability to to get away with Han, but it's just a cool sequence and is the one that really, the more you watch it, makes you just fascinated about Kira as a character, and I completely agree with you, is the, the thing that the first time I watched, uh, I didn't really like Kira, but every time I've watched since is the really landslide thing I like the most about this movie and intrigues me every time. Yeah, and, and I don't know if I want to see more Thrawn like in a big way. I, I like the character as the villain in this movie, and I like Paul Bettany in most anything. From what I understand, and it's not much about either character, he kind of just strikes me as Thrawn light, and so maybe we don't need him a whole lot more. Um does that he, does that uh, check out with you at all? It's just like kind of very sophisticated and uh, and and calm and menacing. Yeah, calm and menacing. And I actually Thrawn the way he was kind of portrayed in Rebels that's very accurate. And I hope that he's not portrayed that way entirely in live action. Yeah, uh, because Thrawn in the novels is portrayed. Um, and he's it's and, and definitely more so than Dryden Voss, but he's far more calculating. He's far more tactical. He is a military mind. He operates on the bridge and is he's not ruthless. Uh, he does a couple ruthless things in Rebels that they've written around as well to make a little bit more sense so that the character's been a little consistent because Dave Filoni's written him a bit and same as Timothy Zahn. Um, but that is interesting because there is some sophistication there, but I would like to see more Dryden Voss. Um, and, uh, and of course I'd like to see more Thrawn. And like you said, Kira, uh, just very interesting. Uh, and, and in a way, uh, we just had this long conversation about the ethics of Han and whether or not they stuck the landing in this movie. It's almost like Kira is the, the scumbag that Han is supposed to be like, like she is not she's the real she's a monster well she is she's not but she's not without feelings like she she does care about han she there is humanity to her but she has chosen to do the thing to survive no matter how ruthless it is and hmm. while i don't think it would ever work to make han a killer um she is the one who's not sorry for who she became 
And that's a cool villain origin story, especially where she's like a pretty girl. And you don't see that a lot in Star Wars. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I think you hit a really good point as well. And I don't think you could make Han that way, but Han is the killer. And I think that is like, he shoots first. And yes, at the end of this movie with Beckett, of course he shoots first. It's very clear. Um, And same with Greedo, but it's, it's one of those ones where you could maybe have towed the line a little bit closer throughout the movie than it being like, it almost, when he shoots Beckett at the end, it's almost like he's like a little afraid. <laughs> yeah, but, it, was, it was almost self-defense. And it was also in, uh, in Greedo. It was self-defense. It, it, it was with Greedo, but it's more confident in that same capacity. So it does, it does kind of work. But uh, anyway, that is on a different kind of side of things. But I, I do think when Kira kind of takes control of Crimson Dawn uh, and kills Dryden Voss, that's a pretty badass moment. My second favorite thing in Solo is when Han and Chewie meet for the first time. Um, nice. Of course. It, I mean, it's they're one of the greatest duos in film history. Uh, it was it was time that we we were exposed to this origin, um, and they used like the time tested Star Wars uh, trope of of meeting a beast in the dark below the floor, and that it turned out to be you know your best friend is the coolest thing. And uh, Chewie is kind of the heart of a lot of good jokes in this movie. Like there's a good sense of humor around the relationship between Han. And, and Chewie, that's true going forward. That kind of becomes who they are together and, and namely who Han is in A New Hope. Um, so it's great to see uh, this like foundation for for Han's heart because he does have this, you know, intense passion for his childhood girlfriend, which feels a little hard to grab onto as a fan of, of Han Solo. It's alienating as soon as that happens. And that's okay because that was a narrative choice on their part. Mm-hmm. But when he learns that he's going to be able to get along with this Wookiee and they, and he literally understands him. Um, then you're at home with Han, you know, whether it's, you know, Harrison Ford or not, you're like, okay, now, now I at least see how this is the same guy. And so it's very important. And, and the meeting is cool. Yeah. This is my number one. This is the, just in my, in my opinion, the thing they, they hit perfectly. Yeah. I think it's a great introduction to the character uh, the way that the relationship is built around, like you said, the creature from the Black Lagoon. Um, but it's like, oh, no, it's Chewie. And it's just the, they're in there together. The way that they kind of, like, he's about to drown him in mud. And I don't, I'm not a huge fan of, of Han speaking Shrewook, but uh, it just it is a little bit of kind of like a, a white flag moment. Yeah. Uh, and I do like that they're able to kind of do that uh so that Chewie's able to be like, okay, I can't, fine, I can't eat you now. I'm hungry. I really want to, but I can't. I'll hear you out. And then they get their, their plan. Uh, and then when they when he hurls him out of the pit, he just throws Han out and he's dragging them around because they're attached by a chain. Uh, it's just the entire sequence is great. Uh, and then the shower that they have together after. Uh, it's just <laughs> overall, it's a great start to... A beautiful friendship. I think they're in a tough position making this movie, trying to decide whether or not Han should be able to speak Shrewook because it doesn't make sense. But and on the other hand, it, like it would also be it would also be it would make a lot of sense 
if they establish that he had to learn to understand him over time and that when he fully understands mm-hmm. him by the time we meet Harrison Ford's Han Solo, that's because they've spent a lot of time together and they have invested in this friendship and this partnership. So it makes, in every way, it makes more sense for him not to know that language, except if he doesn't already know that language and they can't commute like, communicate like Han and Chewie, they're not going to feel like Han and Chewie. And then we have a real problem on our hands for the dynamics in this cast. That's true, but Chewie under Chewie is 190 years old in this movie, and so we know that he can understand basic. Yeah. And so, I mean, if Han can understand, um, yeah, I just I don't know. He doesn't necessarily need to speak it to be able to show that he can understand Agreed. what Chewie's saying. I mean, that was always true. Um, yeah, exactly. But just to 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 illustrate it in some kind of way, like Chewie could have. Um, he could have been yelling and then Han could have said something to imply that his yelling was saying something in just kind of like a funny way. And then you can get that same kind of moment without having the, but that that's, that's picking hairs. Overall, I think they uh, execute the, the meaning of these two uh, really, really well. uh, And is one of those moments that, yeah, if you're going to pick something to include, I think this is uh, probably the most important, um, probably the most important story to tell in the movie. I remember sitting next to you when we went to see that, and I think maybe it clicked with me that it was Chewie ahead of you. Does that make sense? I, th- I think that does make sense, yeah, because I, I don't I don't remember uh, immediately, immediately, like, I mean, you, it's pretty damn quick, yeah. but there is, it's also was so dark, and yes. so for a second there, you just hear the growl, and so you don't really know. It's pretty exciting. Okay, uh, so that was your number one, but we have to backtrack to your number two. Yes, so so my number two would actually be the campfire sequence. Oh, nice! After Han has joined up with the with Beckett's gang, uh, and they're kind of talking about the reasons for why they do what they do, mm-hmm. uh, and we get to there's a lot of Rio in there, and I love Rio. Yeah, we haven't talked about reasons. Rio at all. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk with this scene is because he talks about like, uh, oh, the best sleep you'll get is curled up in the arms of a Wookiee yeah. uh, and um, like, a, like a Minoc roast. Um, and he's just, he's funny. Like, oh, a girl, is she pretty? Does she have sharp teeth? <laughs> and uh, just like Han talking about Kira and Chewie talking about the Empire enslaving the Wookiees on Kashyyyk. Uh, and... Beckett wanting to learn to play the Val Accord, and then you kind of learn about like his oh, yeah. relationship with Val, and it's it's really sweet. Um, and then it's just you get to see a lot about all of these characters and the fact that yeah, they're they're ruthless, and half them are gonna die uh, before the movies. More than half of them are gonna die before the movies out. Yeah, uh, and it's just it's a nice sequence. And then at the end, Beckett's just like he's got this rifle and he's disassembling the rifle. And then he just, wait a minute, kisses it and throws it at Han. Mm. And the DL-44 was a full blaster all along. Yeah. And Han's pistol, and he just like disassembles it and, and like tosses him the weapon that we've seen him have the entire time. And I was just like, okay, that's a cool, subtle way as opposed to slapping us in the face with something and a logical place for him to get a scoundrel's blaster. Uh, it just, it made a lot of sense and was just overall uh, a a really 
awesome, awesome sequence. Also, this scene is another one that very directly lends itself to the genre of Westerns. Like mm. on the tundra, even in the in the old West, it gets cold at nighttime and we have to build a fire and then we like tell ghost stories or we just like kind of talk about how we found ourselves here and what our beliefs and allegiances are. It's like a, we're talking about exposition and opportunities to uh, give the audience pieces of information that they can use for free. And this is a great place to do that because we just have people talking. I mean, it's not, we say uh, people talking in rooms. It's not literally a room, but it's it's nice to get those breaks from the action in Star Wars where we can learn about the people. And mm. uh, yeah, you're right. I, I totally forgot about this scene, but it's a it's tender and entertaining. Yeah, it's just a, a really nice scene and one that there are a handful of in Star Wars that you can always kind of build back to, mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't kind of like go away for any cheap laughs either, and it's just a, a solid scene uh, through and through. So my favorite thing in Solo is getting to see the Falcon before it's been turned into a classic hunk of junk, seeing it in its prime as like a sports car. Still, of course, prefer it in its roughed up state, its classic state, um, but this is the the Falcon that better suits Lando. You know, it's very flashy. The pre-jettisoned uh, pod there in the middle. Um, it's it's very novel. And it's kind of the best example of this movie giving you the fan service that it offers. Um, the Kessel Run, which we haven't talked too much about tonight, is is kind of unnecessary as like the main climactic plot of this movie mm -hmm. like it's just a throwaway line in uh, a previous star wars movie which became incredibly quotable and that's fine if you want to like give it a little bit more background but it like didn't need to be the main thing that proved han's value as a pilot and a hero that he was able to do the kessel run here when he was first flying the falcon yeah. um, but it it, it is the greatest, you know, one of the greatest movie vehicles of all time, certainly the greatest movie spaceship of all time. And to see it before it looks like Han is actually very cool. And it's not suffering from, does it have the X factor of Harrison Ford? No, it's just a great set piece. And it was designed very effectively in this movie. Oh, it's excellent. The way that they're like the, the white, uh, the way that the kind of the cream, or I guess just dirty um, like foam padding around the Falcon is so white and pristine. His cape closet, uh, <laughs> everything about the, the wet bar. Uh, yeah, it's awesome. The fact that it is the classic Falcon in every way, but just pimped out. And when we're flying uh, through that maw and, and the, the heat and the oppression of the galaxy is just exfoliating the beauty yeah. away from the Falcon. And then by the end of it, it looks much more like the ship that we know. It's so cool. Yeah, it is a really, uh, it's, it's, it's essential. It's, it's a, you could not have done this movie without having the Falcon uh, as a key part of it. Uh, does he need to get the Falcon in the movie? Not necessarily, but it is really nice to be able to see a different version of the Falcon and having it be Lando's Falcon for so much of it is cool. Well, what could have been a really interesting story is if they uh, fooled us and they put like another Corellian freighter in this movie and then they blew it up or something at the end. And like you spent the whole movie thinking this was the Falcon and it wasn't. And then like in the next solo movie, they brought in the real Falcon or something. That could have been very cool. 
I actually think that's already better. Yeah. Uh, I, I love that. I think that's I, because you could logically have watched the entire movie and been like, I thought it was Lando's first. This doesn't make sense. Yeah. Because you don't need to rely on having it be Lando's this way. And then you're like, oh, but no wonder Han liked it so much. Right. And so he chased after another one for whatever reason. Yeah, well, his dad also built them, and right. so it made it, it was just. It, I think that's a really cool idea. I, I would have liked that twist. I think that would have been cool. Definitely. All right, that's great. Hey, we'd love to hear other people's ideas because uh, there are a lot of Star Wars fans who like this movie more than we do, and you know, we we tried yeah. we tried to be very celebratory in this discussion. We still found ourselves, you know, nitpicking and griping here and there. That's okay. Um, but if if we missed any of the the really great things about this movie, we'd love for you to let us know. Send us your lists, your favorite things about Solo. Uh, what's going on in the news this week? I just want to get a couple quick honorable mentions. Oh yes, uh, okay, sure. It, just uh, when Han throws the rock, uh, pretends it's a thermal detonator. Oh yeah, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, we didn't talk that is about kind of a cool moment. We didn't talk about Lady Proxima at all. She's not my favorite. No, I'm not a huge fan of Lady Proxima either. That's uh, one of those instances where. It should have been uh, Hatties uh, or some other right. um, alien dialect and used subtitles. But uh, I think th- that was a very cool, uh, I thought the Grindelid species are cool in the way that, that they can't be sun exposed and they had the kind of cool like helmets. Uh, and then the speeder uh, chase that they have with uh, like kind of that big like truck speeder as well. Yeah, uh, it, that's that is a pretty cool uh, on the streets of Kralia chase scene. So that that one's good. Uh, the first light itself, which is driving Boss's yacht. Oh uh, sure, totally. The yacht itself is just awesome. Looking. It's cool. I just love that we call it a yacht. That's that's yeah. just a cool idea. Yeah, it's uh, it's the same kind. It's the same kind that um, Satine has and uh, that actually one of the episodes of Clone Wars that we watched. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that's kind of a cool kind of connection too. Uh, and also another one of my favorite moments, uh, L3 getting shot uh, <laughs> and uh, breaking. You do hate her so much. Yeah. L3 is just annoying. Yeah. She's pretty annoying. And uh, yeah, Gr- but- great actress and uh, great, con- great in theory, the character just, yeah. Didn't, didn't work for me. It is it is a good moment. It might be the best uh, Donald Glover moment when he's like picking up her scraps. Oh yeah, and he's like quite emotional about it. And you know, we didn't talk about the the Easter egg that L three becomes the brain of the Falcon. That is a, a great Easter egg about this movie. Yeah, that is pretty cool for sure. It yeah. would be one there. If I liked Falcon a little bit, like, uh, sorry, if I liked L three a little bit more, it would make a little bit more sense. But it's also cool in the sense it, that the navigational data bank that has been accrued over a long period of time also then finds its way in the Falcon. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Is that it? Uh, yeah, that's it. But uh, not a ton in the news either. Uh, a bunch more uh, set photos for Andor, making it look pretty cool. Uh, definitely going all out on uh, locations for this one as well. I so. constantly forget that this show is even happening. I think it's probably going to be the first one yeah. that we that we get in 2022. Or yeah. no, I guess Mando would probably... I'm going to guess Mando. I don't know. man. I, guess, I don't think Mando Season 3 has started shooting yet. I think they're still doing Book of Boba, Boba Fett. And that's next. Book of Boba Fett is the next Star Wars thing to come out. It's it's the only other... It's the only live action thing that's coming out this year. Right. Um, and, so, and it's coming out in December. So that will uh there's also visions which is 
kind of animated shorts as well. Those will come up this year. And I don't know, maybe, I don't know if a droid story comes up this year or not. Oh yeah. Uh, and that's, I think that's a kiddish thing, but I'm intrigued by the animation innovation in that one. Cause they've said that it's going to be kind of a, a new type of animation. So that could be kind of cool. Cool. And uh, last couple of bad batch episodes, uh, were, uh, uh, pretty good. So we'll talk about those in the next couple weeks. Um, Fallen Order 2, Jedi Fallen Order, the video game. Uh, it seems like almost a lock that that will be happening, that the sequel will be happening, Fallen Order 2. Um, more and more rumors around that. Uh, hiring, uh, tracing that people can do that, oh, hiring for this, and they needed that for the previous one, and just um, video game studios, uh, the business side of things, telling the story of Star Wars, similarly to the way that Lego leaks have provided... Uh, a couple tidbits in the Bad Batch before the first couple episodes did come out. That right. made a lot of sense. Yep. Uh, and then also another thing that I haven't had the chance to check out, but we haven't also mentioned on the podcast yet, that would be Biomes and Vehicles, uh, the little kind of tours that are on Disney+. Plus. They released them on Disney+, Plus on May the 4th, as kind of surprise, uh, here you go. And it's a, a full walkthrough of the Falcon, Oh, cool. Um, like a visual walk and also of a Star Destroyer. Nice. And that's as well, really cool. Yeah. And kind of an at home Star Tours um, slash Discovery Channel of a few different biomes. Uh, so there's Sorgan. Um, Did you like these? I assumed you watched them. I, I, haven't, I haven't watched them yet. Okay. Uh, there are only a few minutes, but I haven't had the chance yet. Uh, but I, I am intrigued to kind of watch them just as ways to, to take in Star Wars subtly in the background. So that'll be kind of cool just oh, to, yeah. to see those up close with all the, with all the specific details. So that's exciting. I'll probably watch those in the next couple of days. Awesome. Cool. Is that it? Yeah, that's it. I wanted to say something that I just found out the other day, and I feel like a moron because this was weeks ago, but we did this episode about... Uh, the times when Star Wars crops up outside of Star Wars, like the different times where I, I, I have have noticed Star Wars referenced in other things. And we talked a little bit about the movie The Indian in the Cupboard. For It's just very minor Star Wars reference, which is that Omri opens his cabinet and he's got his little Darth Vader action figure in there and he's got a little tiny uh, lightsaber. What I didn't know about this movie is that it was directed by Frank Oz. He was the director of The Indian in the Cupboard. And so it's not an accident that there's a Star Wars reference in there at all, but I feel so silly for not saying that when we talked about that movie on our Star Wars I, podcast. I did not know that either. And Frank Oz has not directed that many films, but no. uh, he's directed a handful of uh, classics. And so I guess that's another. Wishing Frank Oz a happy birthday on Tuesday, May 25th. But before then, uh, on Wednesday, May 19th, a happy birthday to, uh, we talked about Chewbacca, although a different one, uh, Peter Mayhew the late Peter Mayhew ah. having a birthday as well. That is it for birthdays. Uh, once again, if you want to send us your lists of your favorite things about Solo, a Star Wars story, or any other thoughts you have on this podcast or any other we've done, you can always email recorder66podcast at gmail.com. You can tweet at recorder66. Please rate and review on your preferred podcast app or like and subscribe if you're joining us on YouTube. And until we are together again, may the force be with you. 